Good morning, ABC. We're glad that you're joining us today. My name's Megan, and I've got some things to share with you that we've got coming up here at ABC. First of all, for you men, we've got a men's breakfast coming up on Saturday, March 12th at 7 a.m. We have a great speaker coming. Jeremy Stallnecker of Mighty Oaks is gonna be sharing with you guys on living a purposeful life. So we would love for you to join us. The cost is $5, and you can find more information on the website or email the church. And another thing for you guys, we've got the men's conference coming up at Hume Lake. It's the Fisherman's Conference that's being held May 13th to 15th. Uh, just a really great time for you guys to get away. Get up into the mountains, spend time together, um, dig into God's word. And a big treat for you guys is that Adam Weatherby is the speaker for that weekend. So just be a fantastic time. Email Sean with any questions for that retreat. And then just around the corner here, coming up this week on Wednesday is our senior breakfast. So come on out for that. It's at 9 a.m. We've got Jim Lewis speaking. He is the city manager for Pismo Beach. So you'll enjoy hearing from him and also enjoy a great breakfast. If you have any questions, you can email Lori and she'll be able to answer all of those for you. And then last but not least, moms, we would love to remind you that this Thursday is our March Mom to Mom program. So we meet at 9 a.m. and also at 7 p.m. And we would love for you to come out and join us. Just as a reminder, you do need to register for childcare. So head to the website and you can sign your kids up there. Uh, this month, we are focusing on the sanctity of life. And so we're excited to have a panel of teachers, um, some of which are the directors at Tree of Life Pregnancy Care Center right here in Atascadero. So we would just love for you to come on out um, and just enjoy that conversation with us as we honor life. So along those same lines, we are partnering with Tree of Life Pregnancy Care Center and we have baby bottles that they use to fill up and use for donations for all of the moms that use the services there. So if you are interested in donating to them, come on by the church office and pick up a baby bottle. You can fill it with change um, or even just a check and either drop that back by to us at the church or right over to Tree of Life. And that would just be a fantastic way to support life in our community. Um, and so we invite you to do that. We have loved worshiping with you today. We hope you have a great week. See you next week. Now therefore in obedience to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ and upon your profession of faith in him as your personal Lord and Savior, I baptize you my brother, Ethan Key, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As we are buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, lean back, lean back, lean back, let go. Lean back. So are we raised in the glorious beauty of his resurrection. You got to do what you got to do. You did a good job. Here, you take this. I'm just making sure. Just making sure you did good. Man, I thought that glass was coming down. Good job. Did we lose a contact? Oh, okay. Oh, man. That kid did not want to get baptized. Uh, baptism is such a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, just think about it sort of objectively. Like if you hadn't maybe grown up in the church or you really have no context for uh, the idea of being baptized, um, it's a strange thing to dunk someone underneath water in sort of a 
a ritualistic inauguration into or initiation into a religious club. It's, I mean, it's uh, almost cultic if you think about it. And yet for thousands of years or nearly 2,000 years, this has been a benchmark of the Christian faith. So much so that we have entire denominations named after baptism. The Southern Baptist Conference is the largest denomination in the country with over 14 million members. Baptism is a significant thing. And, and when we talk about it as a church, I think at times we kind of breeze past the significance of it. Um, or maybe it's just normal enough to us that we just um, take for granted the fact that it is a thing and we do the thing and we continue on with our life and our journey. But there's a moment in time, there's a mark here in the Gospel of Matthew where everything stops and slows down. The story pauses and is interrupted for this grandiose moment where Jesus himself is baptized. And it's really a mark between his upbringing, his childhood, and um, even as a young adult um, or adolescent is kind of divided between that and the moment that he's ordained into ministry. And it becomes this, um, this amazing cataclysmic moment that I think we need to pay attention to. This is the inaugural moment for Jesus as he begins his ministry. And it's a powerful demonstration of the Trinity. Um, maybe the most powerful demonstration in all of scripture, maybe besides Genesis chapter one, where we see the Trinity present there, but we have the son, Jesus Christ, uh, being baptized, the father speaking down his affirmation of that moment and the Holy Spirit descending from heaven. So there's this beautiful picture of the Trinity in the baptism of Christ. Also an excellent example of this dual nature of Jesus, the humanity of Christ and the, the fact that he would join the ranks, so to speak, of all these other humans being baptized and the way that he approaches John to do so. Also seeing though the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ endorsed in this very process, we see this kind of dual nature of the human God, man in Jesus. And so we have a lot to glean here. And I, I think although it may be a funny thing, it's worth pausing and asking, what is the significance of baptism? Why do we do it? Why did Jesus do it? And why should we continue doing it as a church? And I think ultimately the question is going to come up for you at the end of the message is, have you been baptized? And what significance is that to you if so? And if not, maybe why not? So just think about that as we jump in. But I want to turn to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to look at a relatively brief passage that really I think the entire gospel of Matthew pivots on this one passage because it changes from the um, kind of the pre-ministry season in Jesus' life to releasing the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and work and to the point where we see fruitful ministry. Uh, would you pray as we um, open up the passage with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you for what we can glean from your word. Thank you for this powerful example of your baptism. And I ask that as we read these words, Lord, they wouldn't just be words on a page, it wouldn't just be a descriptor of an event that took place um, more than a thousand years ago, but that it would be a divinely inspired moment that ought to change the way we think about you and the way we think about ourselves and the way we move forward in that truth. And so 
illuminate these scriptures to us by the work of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Man, what an amazing moment when Jesus comes up to the Jordan River. We talked a little bit about the river a couple of weeks ago, the significance of that historic and geographical location. And Jesus goes down into the water by his cousin John and comes up out of the water and a voice shakes from heaven, speaking his affirmation of that moment. And then a bird comes down, this, the Holy Spirit in the form of a bird descending on Jesus. And this uh, creates an event for everyone that was there watching that, that was unforgettable. But first, I'd like to just back up a little bit and notice that Jesus comes from Galilee called not by the voice in the wilderness like the others were called. It wasn't as if he was beckoned by John's message of repentance. That wasn't the compelling call for him. It was the voice of his loving father beckoning him out to the river Jordan that day to be baptized. And when he arrives, John objects. And you notice he certainly understands in some instance maybe his own depravity or his own sin in the presence of Jesus, his cousin. Uh, John likely had grown up with Jesus and saw his perfect life on display, understood his righteousness. And so when Jesus says, I'd like to be baptized by you, John says, no way. Why would I baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. And then Jesus quotes uh, the Old Testament and saying, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And John somehow consents and says, as if he gets it. But he didn't fully get it. And here's a clue. In John chapter 1, verse 33, we see a little insight into John's thought process. Go with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 33. It says this. I myself did not know him. This is John the Baptist speaking. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, so John acknowledges the sonship of Christ, the divinity of Christ in that moment, but not prior to that moment. It wasn't until he put him in the water and then he came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Something clicked for John and he realized in that instance that this in fact was the Son of God. But there's a different clue here that I think is interesting in the verse. If you read a little bit further down in the verse or chapter one, it says, John says, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, which tells me that John didn't necessarily fully understand what he was doing, that he was sent by someone, likely the father, God, the father was told, whether it be a vision or audibly or in a dream, I don't know how he was led, 
but he who sent me, someone sent him to baptize with water, which is really significant because as we talked a couple of weeks ago about John participating in this ritualistic kind of cleansing of baptizing people as they repented and they understood the necessity of forgiving their sins or confessing their sins, that we, we sort of have this impression or assumption that John understands what's happening here, that he's the precursor to Jesus and he's preparing the way for Jesus. But this passage in John chapter one gives me the hint that John wasn't entirely sure and yet he took a step of obedience to the Father as he was called to go baptize with water. And it says, he who sent me told me that when I baptize one who the Spirit descends on, then I'll know that he's the Son of God. And so in good faith, John continues in his baptism. And in good faith, John in fact baptizes Jesus, not fully knowing or understanding that Jesus was the Son of God until that moment in which the Spirit descended. A powerful display of obedience in my mind for John, but more importantly, uh, the recognition that this is not some goofy, archaic ritual developed by a crazy guy in the wilderness. You read through Matthew chapter 3 and you go, well, this crazy John with the camel's hair is calling out in the wilderness and he's developed some kind of uh, ritual initiation into the coming kingdom of God by dunking people in the water. And we think it's kind of crazy, but no, you realize as you read this, that this in fact was conceived in the mind and the heart of God himself, that God developed and invented baptism from the start and then led John, directed John to go baptize in his name. And he said, you'll baptize with water, but the one coming after you will baptize in the Holy Spirit. This is a ritual. This is a physical act. This is a moment of obedience ordained and developed by God himself, not by a crazy guy in the wilderness. And so when Peter preaches to the early church in Acts chapter 2, and the people ask Peter, what should we do next after having heard the gospel? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He was handing down a command from God the Father to the early church. Repent and be baptized. He didn't make it up. John didn't make it up. Peter didn't make it up. John, the, the apostle, didn't make it up. Jesus didn't even make this up. God the Father handed down this directive to John the Baptist and then led Jesus out to the river to be baptized. And so we have this river, Jesus coming from Galilee up to the river. I want to I want to give you some um, sort of handles to grab onto as we look at baptism. And there's three things that are clear in this passage. One is a river, second one is a crown, and the third one is a bird, a dove. As we look at the river, the crown, and the bird and understand what God is doing in this moment with Jesus and that he's inviting us to participate in this very moment, it's significant for us to understand what was happening and taking place for Jesus himself. We have this river first, a river of water of righteousness. For Jesus, this wasn't a demonstration of repentance like it was for everybody else that got baptized. It's important to recognize that Jesus didn't have anything to repent of. He was sinless. He was perfect. But for Jesus, it was a demonstration of righteousness, the fulfillment of all righteousness, as he said. John's baptism was focused on repentance. Jesus' baptism shifts toward righteousness, which is the fruit of repentance. 
really important to see that distinction. But as he steps into the waters of the Jordan, those waters become water of righteousness for Jesus. And as we follow him into the water, those waters for you and me become waters of righteousness. We can become like him in his death. This is the invitation for Christians. We can become like him in his death and like him in his resurrection to righteousness. Paul talks about this in his letter to the church in Philippi. He says, in order that I might gain Christ, this is Philippians 3, 8, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's saying very clearly, the righteousness doesn't come through baptism or through the water. The righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ, that I could be called righteous because he is called righteousness. That I could achieve and attain a righteous life because of the righteousness of Christ. Which is an important distinction because we can kind of convolute this idea of the sacred rituals of the church into believing that they have somehow um, something to do with our standing with God. Or our salvation. Baptism doesn't have anything to do with your salvation other than the demonstration of your acknowledgement of the righteousness you've received with Christ. Peter connects the dots for us this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He's comparing baptism to um, the flood of Noah. Really interesting. And he talks about the flood waters rising and the eight people of Noah's family that were spared by the flood waters. And he says, baptism serves as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus that you're saved, the demonstration of baptism is basically showing your salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but that the baptism itself stands as an appeal to that righteousness. It's just a demonstration. It doesn't cause salvation. It's not the method for salvation. It's an appeal for salvation to the Father through Jesus and becomes a historical mark in the life of every believer for you to be able to take the identity of Christ himself and make it your own. Look at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this is the crown that Christ puts on in his baptism. The crown of royalty, the beloved son, the identity of the king bestowed upon his son. That's a beautiful picture. The authority of the father and the ordination of Jesus' ministry with him saying, I love the NIV translation, him saying, this is my son whom I love. And with him I'm well pleased. This, uh, this beloved word we see in the ESV that we read a minute ago is really helpful if you, if you just kind of take a minute to ask, well, what's this mean? What's God saying here? You can kind of uh, do a quick word study and realize it's this Greek word, agapetos, which is the beloved. So my, my beloved, or NIV translates, the one whom I love. And if you, if you take that word and then you ask yourself, well, where else does this word appear? Firstly, you notice that this is the first time this word's used in the New Testament. So God speaking his truth about his son Jesus, the beloved nature of his son Jesus, first time here in the New Testament. And then you superimpose that back onto the Old Testament. Now, Old Testament, just a quick little um, kind of 
<laughs> rabbit trail on language study, Old Testament, as many of you know, is written in Hebrew. And so there's no direct connection between the word usage and the early manuscripts between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there was, in fact, an early translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which we refer to as the Septuagint. So it's the Old Testament translated into Greek, which means we have a comparison study on Greek language when we take the Septuagint and put it up against the New Testament, the Greek New Testament. And it just so happens that this word, agapetos, is used the first time in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Genesis, when Abraham takes his son Isaac up the hill and God refers to Abraham's son as the beloved, the agapetos, first time appearing in the Old Testament. And he uses that same word when he speaks that truth over his own son, his beloved son. And the thing that's clear for me becomes the identity the name-bearing identity of Jesus, the sonship of Christ to his father, the royal king. So Jesus as a man, as a human, as a boy who became a man, takes on in this moment of baptism, takes on the identity of his father, the royal identity. What's so striking to me about this affirmation is it becomes clear that Jesus didn't need commendation from any other single person on the planet other than his father. That he looked for and sought after affirmation from one person and one person alone, and that was God the Father. That no one else's opinion mattered to him. That he didn't need anyone else to recommend him or to endorse him or to somehow support his teaching or his identity. He only needed the recommendation from one person and that was God the Father. And so when we become like Christ in his baptism, we embrace this very identity. Look at what Peter says about this in 1 Peter. Let's see if I can find it here. I had a little bit marker here. 1 Peter chapter 1 or chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race. This is speaking of us, the current church age. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he goes on, Once you were a people, once you were not a people, now you are a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he goes on and on and on talking about our royal priesthood, our royal identity. That we take on the identity of Christ. That as we are baptized, as we demonstrate our partnership in his death and our partnership in his resurrection. That we join him in his death, join him in his resurrection. And now we join him in this royal identity as a son, as a child, a daughter of God taking on this royal identity, we become like Christ. And in this moment, in Matthew chapter 3, God the Father splits the skies. And with a resounding cry, he said to all who are present, this one's mine. And with him, I'm pleased. And to me, as I read this account of the baptism of Jesus, and I ask myself, what's the significance of baptism? And why did Jesus get baptized? And why should I get baptized? This becomes the single most compelling argument for baptism. Why? Because for me, it answers 
the deepest longing and craving of my heart for my entire life, the question of my identity. And if I think about some of my greatest heartache, my most crippling environments, or my, my, my most challenging relationships, they all come back to a misplaced misunderstanding of my identity. The question is that has resounded for years and years is whose am I? You see, we start with that as young kids with our parents, right? And most of us are there or have been there. We start with answering that question by saying, well, I belong to them. I bear their name. I'm a child of so-and-so. And then at some point that identity transfers maybe to a friend or maybe to a significant other or even a spouse. And so then we say we belong to them. That's part of our identity. And at some point that can even transition to a social group or an institution or maybe a workplace or in my case, even a church for you to be able to say, I am theirs. I belong to them. I belong to this institution. I work here. I'm part of this organization. That's my identity. That's who I am. And it's a misplaced identity that causes this deep craving and deep longing that can't be saturated by any Anything other than the, the love of God, the identity of God himself. And in this sky-splitting moment with the magnitude voice shaking the world like thunder, the Father calls out, he's mine and I'm pleased. And I think some of you need to hear that. I think when you consider what your role in the church is, what your role in your family is, your role in your workplace. And you start to place a little bit of identity in that and what we do. And it becomes a little bit convoluted. I think you need to pause and look at this amazing example of the baptism of Jesus and see and hear the Father speaking with sky-splitting, cloud-parting, thunderous voice, this one is mine. He is mine. She is mine. She is my daughter. She is my son. And with him, with her, I am pleased. I think you might need to hear that. Because there is an invitation to join Jesus in his royal identity. And it is biblically true that God will say that over you. That he would be pleased with you as you take these steps of obedience. So I want you to consider, have you heard God say that? Do you need to hear God say that? Because it makes all the difference in the world when you start to question your own identity. So join Jesus in the river of righteousness and put on the crown of royal identity, of royal childhood, heir to the throne. There's so much confidence uh, that Jesus demonstrates in the pages following this passage after his baptism and after his temptation. We're going to see that next week. Um, it really, in fact, the temptation kind of sidebar um, is really all about his identity. Satan goes after his identity. Um, we'll talk about that next week. But I see this confidence in, in sort of the cadence and the, 
um, the mannerisms of Jesus and how he responds and how he carries himself, that he knows he is the son of God, that he knows he has a royal identity and he believes it and he literally is only seeking the affirmation and accolade from the father. Didn't care, didn't seem to care much what any other human being on the planet thought. So anyway, there's this scene uh, in the Gospel of Luke, not long after his baptism and kind of ordination to ministry and then the temptation and he begins his earthly ministry and he wanders into a synagogue uh, in Nazareth. And as was custom in the synagogue, uh, he's handed a scroll to teach the Lord to read, recite the law as they would do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus walks into the synagogue as he handed this scroll and it's the scroll of Isaiah. And he kind of runs through the scroll and he identifies Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads this passage. Listen, this is in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus reads this with boldness and confidence and he leaves everybody in the synagogue speechless. And so they're sitting there watching. In fact, it describes, Luke says it so well. Listen, he says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're all looking at Jesus going, what did he just say? What just happened? And in his ability to read the room, maybe even read their minds, this is how he responds. He says, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's as if he answers this unspoken question of, is he trying to say he's the Messiah, that he's in fact the one who's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor by setting free the oppressed and recovering sight to the blind and proclaiming liberty to the captives? Is he saying he's the Messiah? And Jesus says, this has been fulfilled today in your presence as you've heard these words with such confidence. He knew he was the son of God. He knew he had a royal identity. He wasn't going to apologize for it. He wasn't going to try to prove it. He didn't have anything to prove. Man, how compelling, how attractive is such a confident identity. That when God said, I am well pleased with you, that was more than enough for Jesus. He didn't need to go find the pleasing or the affirmation or somehow the, the attention of any other person. That was enough. He owned his identity and lived it out in the power of the Spirit. There was a river, there was a crown, and there was a bird. And in that moment, Jesus set free the work of the Holy Spirit. This is, again, such a clear and powerful demonstration of the Trinity. God the Father, his Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And on this premise, on the premise of the baptism of Christ... We see the Trinity become folded into this concept of baptism. In fact, at the end of Matthew in 28, when he sends out his disciples, he says, go into all the world and preach the good news. Make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's acknowledging the work and the presence of the Trinity in his own baptism and his present, the presence of the Trinity in our baptism. 
The question becomes, as you read this and consider what took place for Jesus and his reception of the Holy Spirit as it descended like a dove on him, is when uh, we embrace Christ and when we make a decision to follow Jesus, do we receive the Holy Spirit the same way Jesus does? Or do, do we need to uh, be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit? That's a question the church has been dealing with for ages And there are differing opinions on it because there are different supportive passages for each concept. So one would say, well, you receive the Holy Spirit, that the work of the Holy Spirit is present at the moment that you surrender your life to Christ, irrespective of baptism. And another would say, well, you need to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And they would base it off of a passage like Acts chapter 19, where um, Peter goes up and they find, or Acts chapter 8, two different examples where Um, Both Peter and Paul, they find and discover that these people haven't received the Holy Spirit and yet they apparently believed and so they're baptized and then they receive the Holy Spirit upon their baptism. But there are other examples in scripture where it's this simultaneous believing, this hearing, believing, repenting, um, kind of a one phase process where the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 10 verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, just as he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So do you have to wait to receive the Holy Spirit until baptism? No. Does the Holy Spirit wait until baptism? The question is, there are examples of both. That's the reality. I think a better question though is, have you turned the work of the Holy Spirit loose in your life by demonstrating an obedient step of faithfulness in pursuing baptism the way that Jesus pursued baptism? Through public proclamation and profession of faith. John Stott says it this way, initiation into Christ, according to the New Testament, is a single stage experience in which we repent, believe, are baptized, receive both the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, after which, by the indwelling power of the Spirit, we grow into Christian maturity, that this all happens simultaneously. I think there's something profound in the life of every believer that takes place upon baptism that unleashes the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not unlike the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, where they prayed, they were waiting, and they received the Spirit fell and was set free in the lives of those believers as the church was born. Augustine said, What the soul is to the body, the Holy Spirit is to the church. And if that's true, then when we make a claim when we allow for God to speak his identity over us, when we step into the river of righteousness and we place on the crown of royal identity, we turn the spirit loose in our lives to continue leading and guiding and working for the fruit of the spirit. The biblical prescription is integration. It's a single phase, one stage process. It's not that you need to believe and then you need to at some later point receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. No, I see it far more integrated than that. In, in Scripture, it's believe, repent, be baptized, receive, and obey that we would follow collectively to the pattern of the New Testament church. And it happens all simultaneously, all very quickly. And I think that the Western church has potentially overcomplicated this. That we want to separate out some of these ritualistic moments And for good reason. I mean, sometimes it's because of the age of our children that they believe in God, that they follow Jesus or make a decision to follow Jesus. But we want to make sure they really understand what that means before they're baptized 
or we want to make sure they're old enough to really get it so that they can remember it and that it becomes meaningful for them. Or maybe it's simply just a scheduling thing or a convenience thing that I'm not going to be baptized maybe until there's a church calendar moment where I can invite my friends and family to so we can make a big deal of it. Or maybe it's simply that you want the event to be symbolic and special and so you wait for a holiday like Easter. There's nothing wrong with these things. The intentions are good. I just don't think, biblically speaking, that we're supposed to separate out this process. I see again and again and again in Scripture where it's repent and be baptized. Where it's you recognize your sin You acknowledge your need for your identity to be shifted into that of Christ and you want to identify with him and you want to receive forgiveness for your sins. And so you repent and you confess and you believe and then you're baptized and the Holy Spirit joins you and lights a fire under you and continues to do the work that he's done for many, many years in the lives of other believers. I think the message is let's keep it simple. Not to minimize the significance of the ritual, but minimize the protocol that surrounds it. I just don't see in Scripture, in fact, I I don't think there is any example in Scripture where someone places their faith in Jesus, hears the gospel, and embraces the truth of God with confession and repentance, seeking forgiveness from their sin, and then has to sign up for a 12-week class on baptism. It's not in scripture. And I'm not saying that that, that's bad or that a discipleship process to help you understand and comprehend fully what it means to be reborn, to experience a a newborn faith and identity in Christ. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. I just think that we tend to make things more complicated than they ought to be. So what should we do? Simply put, as Peter says, repent and be baptized. Step into the river of righteousness. Put on the crown of a royal identity. Embrace the dove, the Holy Spirit. Turn loose the work of the Spirit in your life. Follow the commandments in Scripture. Follow the directive that Jesus followed when he was called out to the wilderness into the river Jordan. Follow the obedience of John the Baptist where the father said, I want you to go baptize people with water and after you will come up someone who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. John didn't fully understand it. He didn't completely comprehend it. And if you didn't go to a class on baptism, you may not fully understand the significance of it, but I think that's okay. I think there's a simple step of faith that God is calling every believer to that's saying, I want you to understand what your identity means. I want you to understand what it means to identify yourself with me, to be called mine, to have a stake driven in the ground on my name, and to have my opinion matter and count more than any other opinion in the entire planet. I'm yours and with, I'm your mind and with you I'm well pleased. It's interesting to me when I consider how the world views baptism. I mean, just think about some of the pagan religions of the world. Or even some of the kind of the mainstream Eastern, the, the, the Hindu religion or the, the Islamic religion, some of the more extreme scenarios and and how they treat um, Christians, even the totalitarian regimes like China, people that feel threatened by Christians or any other concept that would 
unite people around a differing viewpoint, think about the fact that in the persecuted church, that most Christians are killed at the point of their conversion when they're baptized. That world religions, world leaders see this as a significant mark, that that is the departing point for that person from their um, ideology to the Christian ideology. And if they think it's significant enough to actually kill a Christian based on their own baptism, then shouldn't we at the church at least take it that serious? Shouldn't we understand the significance? If it's so clear to them, I know there's a whole bunch of arguments of, well, you don't need to be baptized to be saved and you don't need to be baptized to receive the work of the Holy Spirit and it's not baptism that saves. All of those are true and good and fair arguments. What I'm simply saying is that there is a point in time where the Holy Spirit indwells in, in every believer and is turned loose to continue working in fruit and for some reason, and I can't describe it, for some reason that point seems to come at a significant amount um, when, baptize, when baptism takes place. Uh, Howard Hendricks was a, um, a fantastic pastor, preacher, um, taught preaching at Dallas Theological Seminary for years. And he used to say that in a marriage counseling situation, he would have a, he would have a husband and a wife and, and there would be some kind of stronghold or barrier between the two that, that seemed to be kind of impenetrable. And he would always ask in that environment if both parties had been baptized. And he said that more often than not, and he didn't provide a metric, it wasn't as if he did a study on it, but he said more often than not, he would learn that one of the two of them had not been baptized, had not had that historical moment, that public demonstration of their faith in their life, which turned the spirit loose, which embraced the identity of sonship or daughtership of God, hadn't stepped into the water of righteousness with Christ. And that that very um, stronghold couldn't be broken until they'd made that claim. I just think it's more significant that maybe we give it credit. I see this passage in Matthew chapter 3 as a turning point. All, all the Gospels, it's kind of like before Christ's baptism and after Christ's baptism. It's like pre-ministry of Jesus and post-ministry of Jesus. Significant, a significant moment in the life and story of Jesus Christ. And I think it ought to be a significant moment in the life of you if you're a believer, if you follow Jesus. If you haven't been baptized, that's the invitation this morning. Why not? What's keeping you from that? Why not step into the water and put the crown of royalty on your head and release the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? We're actually going to open up the tank and do some baptisms this morning. If you happen to be watching this video on Sunday morning uh, and it's prior to the 1045 service, I, I invite you in boldness. I'm kind of being presumptuous, but why not come on down? 
Come on down to ABC on campus. You can come out to the parking lot. We're going to be out in the outdoor worship venue at 1045. And if you come at least by 1130, you can check in at the Connect booth at the back over there. We'll have a t-shirt and a towel ready to go for you. And we're going to have the tank ready to go. And uh, we'll baptize you right here, right now. Let's do it. No more excuses. No more reasons why not to. If you have been baptized, I want to encourage you. Are you living in the acknowledgement of God the Father speaking truth over you that you are his and he is pleased with you? Are you wearing that crown of royal sonship, of royal childhood? And have you released the work of the Holy Spirit? Are you following him? Are you tuning your ear to hear him? Are you embracing the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Or are you ignoring it? Tuning out the Spirit's voice, desensitizing your ear to his leadership. I invite you, put on the crown, embrace the work of the Spirit, step into the water of righteousness, and allow God to continue writing your story with him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. And I praise you for what you're doing in the life of of our church and what you've done in the history of the church for nearly 2,000 years. That God, you've used this historical marker for people to identify them with you, to allow for us to make a clear statement, public proclamation of faith before our friends and family to say that we are yours, that you can claim us that we would step into the river of righteousness, joining you in your baptism, joining you in your death, and joining you in your resurrection, joining you in your royal identity, and embracing the leadership of the Holy Spirit to do so. Thank you, God. I pray for some that are they're stirring right now, that just aren't sure that, that this really matters or, or that they really need to to follow through. God, I ask that you would um, provide the opportunity and a clear path forward for them to take the next step with you. I thank you, Lord, for being patient with us. Thank you for your gracious nature and your kindness. In your name I pray. Amen. If you'd like to join us this morning, again, we'll be down here on campus. Um, If not, and maybe you're watching this on Sunday night, um, you didn't miss it. Don't worry. Um, we can baptize you just about anywhere, anytime. So give us a call at the church, um, check in with us, and we'd be happy to help you take those next steps in faith. Thank you for joining us this morning. We'll see you next week.